the factory. Throughout the 1970s, I worked at about 18 jobs, six of which were in factories, when not in education or when I was, euphemistically speaking, between jobs on the dole. From picking strawberries and peas to shoveling pig slurry, I hated working on farms especially. Maths teacher Mr Whiteley, those school years ago, would clap his hand, sending up a cloud of chalk and exclaim that the failures amongst us in the class would be destined to work at the local meat factory as if a life prison sentence. Whiteley was correct. Well, in part. For a few weeks, I ended up in the old pork hall where pigs were turned into all manner of products, from sausages and bacon to brawn and lard. Employed as a temporary cleaner, I got to see all over the factory, from the abattoir to the bacon lines to the lard plant, from the fat gathering basement to the void high above. The factory had a powerful influence on me, and through its bloody imagery, together with the workers who struggled to retain their humanity in such a demeaning setting, I had regular chores. One was to skim the pit in the basement, to skim the pit of its maggot-ridden fat for it to be sent off to the nearby baby doll cosmetics factory, and the other was to clear up the evidence of what was then called courting couples, who snuck up to the void at the top of the plant to express their affections. So, in response to working at Haverhill Meat Products, I wrote a series of poems about an imaginary young woman working at the factory. Here is but a snippet. Pig pieces sipped into plastic under vacuum. Flies foponerized. Ladle skims a pit of fat. Here is lipstick. Baby doll vermilion a protein kiss. She adjusts a blade. Pig pieces fall. She hears a man call. Move it. I ain't a dog's dick. Kidney skids across dishes. Brute in the ears. She hears some sexist shit. Blubber cold soap part. Ribbon guts on fingers pulled from black plastic, grinning pig faces in stainless steel basins, pig feces on floor, trees of meat passed between plants, past hedgerows of jellied skin, sex is a game of a butcher's knife away, abscess halts incision and they have it away, as if life's caffeine up in the hot, hot, hot void. Hopper full of pepper ground, a grate of two cogs out of tune, white noise, a cage, armies of hands on the pig. After four weeks, I left. A friend had told me it was easy to get a job anywhere, he said, remembering this was May 1974. Just go round and ask for one. So I did. The first factory I called at was a warehouse, Hilly International, then had a manufacturing plant near to the town centre of Haverhill and this warehouse of goods on an outlying industrial estate. Only part of the plant was devoted to manufacture and product development and the rest of it was for warehousing. They made furniture mostly famed for stadium seating alongside high-end chrome and leather arm chairs. I got a job directly. The next day, I was employed initially as labourer and gopher. There were around a dozen working at the site and three managers. For the first few days, I just did what I was told, helping load and unload lorries. Within a week or so, 
I was driving around the warehouse on the Lansing Bagnell forklift, moving stillages and pallets of goods from one place to another. Quickly, I was promoted due to failing eyesight. No, no, not my own eyesight, but the eyesight of the manager responsible for goods in and goods out. He couldn't read the serial numbers of dispatch papers. So, I took on the role. Though it could be quite boring work, it was never mind-numbingly terrible. The comings and goings of lorries and other jobs assigned to me meant the day passed with relative ease. It was May 1974, Harold Wilson was running a minority government with Heath's three-day week and an NUM miners' strike behind us. I soon became a member of the Amalgamated Engineering Union. AEU, and was gobsmacked as three of the dozen employed in the warehouse were proudly non-union. Ah, the rural dwelling folk. Within a few months there were strikes, and I knew instinctively which side I was on. Paying conditions were relatively good, but you get neither by saying, please may I. However, later in the year, redundancies were announced in negotiation with the union. Though I was last in, my name wasn't on the list. However, the three non-union workers now face redundancy. One of the three was an elderly tea boy who had learning difficulties and all the workers across the warehouse disagreed with both the management and union. He had to stay. To that end, we were successful. When right-wingers go on about health and safety as a burden of red tape, it's not their lives helped by such regulations. At some point, management in the warehouse decided that polypropylene furniture could be burnt in the yard. Even now, research is hazy because different mixes of chemicals can be far more toxic than others. Anyway, I was asked to burn such chairs. Immediately, on ignition, I knew the chairs I was burning were dangerous as I heaved and coughed. After talks between the leading technician, union rep and management, the head of the fire service paid a visit and stipulated that one chair could be burnt at a time. In other words, he was backing management. A few weeks later, it was noted that a kitchen and living room flat-packed furniture had been sent to the fire officer's private address. Luckily for me, the leading technician burnt the chairs from then on. Workers at the warehouse felt quite confident as 1974 turned into 1975. At Christmas, we all lined up to get our company Turk in a bottle of wine. My parents were thrilled to bits with this. It was suggested that I should become a shop steward, but because I was single I declined. I would have called for a strike at any and every opportunity, and if there are small mouths to feed, well, better a family, woman or man for the post, I thought. However, I was really encouraged by their faith in me, and I felt for the first and only time in my life like a real worker. However, come lunch breaks, there I was with a book, Sitting up the corner, I had my dream still, and one of those dreams was about to take shape. Back in the late 1940s, my parents had produced art catalogues on a small Adana letterpress machine. Their typeface was, I recall, 
and they had 10.12.14.18 point fonts properly laid out in trays in a wooden cabinet. Anyway, the machine was idle, so my dad gave it to me. I began to learn typesetting with a view to printing my own little book of poetry. Typesetting is incredibly time-consuming, but I made a start. There were trips up to London to buy a new type font, spacing material, ledge, ink and new rollers for my 6 by 4 inch Adana press. I could now set a block of type, lock it in place in the chase with coins and take a proof. I left Hilly International a year into the job and with money saved from the work, I bought a second-hand Ronio duplicator and a long-arm typewriter together with more Adana printing equipment. So, in the late spring of 1975, my little press, stable press, was set up. I had committed myself to a dream. <laughs> 